Onaso. So I think I'll respond to one of the questions that came to me by note before we start. In fact, I'll read it. <clears throat> I think it's relevant to all of us here. Good question. And that is, uh, the qu- the, begins with a comment. <clears throat> I assume, I presume, I suppose there are many reasons for venturing into insight meditation. Before having shamatha under one's belt, having, for example, completely completed, uh, achieved shamatha, having settled your mind in its natural state. <coughs> what is the explicit reason in the context of this eight week retreat? And that is, <coughs> why are we not simply spending the whole time? in shamatha. Well, if I, fu- I felt that a significant number of you would achieve shamatha in eight weeks, <laughs> we wouldn't do anything else. But eight weeks for most people is a little bit short. And so I'm really passing on the words of my very precious teacher, Gautra Rinpoche, but really is all my teachers. And I've had many, over 40, over these 40 years. Um, that there's a middle way. There's a middle way. There is a path, and along the path there are practices that we're not ready for at an earlier phase, we're ready for later. That's the nature of the path. The whole theme, again, I just want to emphasize this point, the, p- the point of a path, as opposed to simply practicing meditation or being a virtuous person, is the notion of path, the fourth noble truth, is it brings about something irreversible, some real irreversible change, transformation, liberation. So not only in the course of this lifetime, but never you fall back to where you were before. That's a big deal. And that's really, I think I've mentioned, that's why I continue teaching. If I didn't believe in the path, if I didn't feel that was really worth conveying, then I say, hey, you got lots of podcasts, I've published 40 books, knock yourself out, I'm out. You know, <laughs> I've, I've done my share, I've, I've blah, 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 you know, I'm just going to go off into retreat myself. But feeling that, you know, maybe there's still some real value in showing people there is a path, and giving them some sense that maybe that's not just for the good old days, sometime, you know, in the past, it's still viable. You know. And so, path. What all of my teachers have told me from the beginning, this is 1971, is that as we set our sights on or arouse an aspiration to engage in a path, Lam Rim is a path. I mean, it stages of path means the whole idea of that is you're bringing about some irreversible transformation and not just thinking a lot of very meaningful good thoughts, right? But now all of those, who, those of you who are trained in the Galupa tradition or other traditions where you have the four thoughts that turn the mind, the Lam Rim, the Lam De, words of my perfect teacher, dual order of liberation, Atisha's lamp for the path to enlightenment. These are all Lam Rims, right? Well, then you must have heard, if you've had proper instruction, that as you're just first venturing into the practice, you're quite new, but let's imagine you're new, but you really have faith. So like Tibetans for the last thousand years, when they're just starting out, they generally do have faith. They're raised in that. They're drenched in that from the time they're children. <clears throat> and then they're introduced to Lamrim, and they just take it right in. Just like our school children taking an intro course in physics, they'll just drink it up. When they're, <clears throat> I don't know, 12 years old or whatever, they're not going to be questioning Newton or hearing about James Clerk Maxwell, and I'm not quite sure about him, you know, the 12-year-old. Not likely. You, you, you take it in. This is part of our culture, right? And so you start there at the very beginning of the Lam Rim, reflecting on the preciousness, the rarity of a, a fully endowed human life, right? But, do they, but in proper teaching and practice, do you stick with that and not look anything ahead? 
Do you stick with that until you have full realization you've just absolutely squeezed that piece of fruit dry and there's nothing left? No. That's called discursive meditation. It's a better translation than analytical. It's discursive meditation. But as you may, if you go into a Lamrim retreat, uh, you're med- or you're meditating on the four thoughts, or you're whatever, you drench your mind in the, that phase of the path that really is accessible, where you can get good traction, you understand it, you have a lot of confidence in it, and then you saturate your mind, right, in that practice. But you don't just stick there. As you're saturating your mind in the earlier phases of the, pra- of the path that is right where you are, appropriate to where you are in your practice right now, you're doing something which the Tibetans call shargom. And shargom, it's, I think I've never heard a better translation than glance meditation. Shar literally means to arise. And that is you're focusing on the practices right in front of you. These are for me. These I can definitely do. These I definitely get benefit from. But you look ahead. So as you're really focusing on your meditations where, right where you are, you're attending, you're looking ahead along the path. And not spending a lot of time there, but you're kind of scanning. Scanning meditation is another word for it. You're kind of scanning through. You're taking in the big picture all the way up to the teachings on emptiness, the teachings on shamatha and so forth. So you're holding the big picture while you're putting your two feet on the ground and moving forward right where you are, right? So that's what I was taught when I was first taught Lamrim in 1971. Focus there. Don't, you know, don't spend all your time on the highest meditations. You're not probably quite ready for those yet. But do take those into account. So is that quite clear, that balance? Focus where you are, but take in the big picture. And, this, and I was told this so early when I was uh, 1972 or so, 72 at latest, 73. Still very much a beginner, but kind of had some sense of the path, hearing about Vajrayana. And I remember going to Geshe on Taige. It was my primary, receiving teachings from six days a week back then. And I remember commenting, it's about 1972 or 3, that, whoa, you know, I've got, really got my hands full with the Lamrim. There's a lot of material here. I, there's a lot of work to do, a lot of transformation to bring about. I clearly don't feel I'm ready for Vajrayana, you know, with all that. And he said, oh, very good. Well, I should, and I think now, now that you've recognized that, I think you should ask His Holiness Dalai Lama for a Dzogchen, not Dzogchen, Vajrayana empowerment. What? <laughs> you know? And no, he was quite serious. He said, well, good, now that you've seen the big picture, uh, yes, you actually should receive empowerment for Dzogchen, Vajrayana, for Tantra. I'm so just a Dzogchen junkie. Uh, you should go, request His Holiness. So I remember Gavin Kilty, Lars Mikkelsen, and myself, the three of us. We'd all been there around the same time. Remember? The old guys. You know, you remember... We all have, a, back then, we all have the same build. We're all about six foot two. We're all skinny as rails. You, know, you probably know the story that's coming. So the three of us were encouraged, you know, request this empowerment from His Holiness. Yamantaka. And, you know, like we're still walking around in our diapers, basically. I mean, we're 22, 20 years old, but, you know, Dharma-wise, it's diapers, you know. And so we had this private, I'm rambling here, but it's kind of a cool story. And so these three of us, one from Denmark, England, and then me from America, we had our audience with His Holiness. And we came in. And as soon as we walked in, His Holiness took one look at us, and he just burst into laughter. <laughs> that was the first thing. And, and I mean a belly laughter. I mean, he was having such a good time. It was like, oh, oh, oh. And I can't make it. But you know His Holiness. You've seen him laugh. 
And Lars and Gavin and I were kind of wondering, what do we, you know, looking at our flies, did we not zip up? What do we do? Are we grubby? You know, why? But it was such good-natured laughter. It was not sarcasm, anything like that. It was just, he was having a really good time, you know? And so he, he got over his, his belly laugh, and we didn't even have to ask him. And he just turned to us and said, three tall, skinny men have just come in. And that made his day, you know? We really didn't look like Tibetans at all, you know? Lars has, uh, you know, Danish hair, totally blonde, and Gavin and I were all tall and skinny. And it was just kind of like three ETs had just walked in, you know? (laughs) So we made our request. But the point there was, what was Gishing Antaiki was saying? Was he saying, oh, Alan, you're so totally amazing, you're really, you're fantastic, you should receive Yamantaka because you're so totally qualified. No, no way. No way. But he wanted me to have the seeds. He wanted me to have seeds. He wanted us to have these seeds, okay? Now you'll see, there's where that's the direction you're going. That's where the very, very deep, very powerful transformation takes place. And meanwhile, then go back to your ordinary practice, your, your, your daily fare, and continue on. So, and then Gatchodamache, with whom I started training in 1990, he taught this text in about 1992 or three or so, he said the same thing. This is a, this is a path. This is a path. This is a Dzogchen Lamrim. Starts with the preliminaries. There's a lot of Lamrim in there. Okay? And then it goes Shamadeva Vipassana and then right on through. You can see the text. But as Gatchodam, she was teaching this entire text, I mean, you can see it front to back, uh, as he was giving counsel to me and I'm sure to the other people, he said, well, okay, find where you connect, where you're, you know, the gears mesh, where you really feel, okay, this I can do. So it's probably going to be up there in the preliminary practices, maybe the Shamata and so forth. So really focus there where there's traction, where you're seeing this really is engaging my mind. This is training my mind. This is moving along a path. But don't just stop there and ignore the rest of the text. Be looking ahead, looking ahead, glancing through, glancing through, getting some familiarity all the way through the end, all the way up to Turkel, the direct crossing over, very, very advanced. Yeah, go ahead, get some familiarity there, but then come back home and then gradually, gradually, the locus of your attention, the focal point, will gradually move along that path, and you'll find it, well, I don't need to focus on that so much. I think that's done its work, and now I'm here, and then here, and here. But you keep on holding the big picture, right? So that's exactly the rationale uh, for us uh, not spending just all eight weeks just in Shamad without a sign, or for that matter, we can go back to the preliminary practices and just spend all eight weeks meditating on the four thoughts that turn the mind. That would be worthwhile, but... This is what we're doing. So in these eight weeks, we're covering these three bardos, pretty formidable. By the way, the air conditioning is on. It just doesn't feel like it. It's just not working at all. Um, It's pretty sweaty here. People listening by podcast, enjoy your weather. (laughs) It's really sticky here. Oh, very good. Okay. Uh-huh. Good. If it's on now, that's fine. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll suffer through no matter what, or bear on through. So, here we are for these eight weeks. I'd like to say this right now, and that is, you saw it. It was not my interpretation. You saw exactly what Padmasambhava said. Continue settling your mind in its natural state until you achieve shamatha, until your mind has been settled in its natural state. Do that first. Do not go ahead. 
He couldn't say it more clearly, so you know it's not an interpretation, it's a straight translation. And then you can see Gantrinabhuja's commentary, but Padmasambhava himself says it. But here we are moving ahead. Well, we're doing exactly what Gantrinabhuja, and you can imagine he didn't come up with that all afresh. He was passing on the wisdom of his guru going back right on through, you know, to, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so it's a good idea to having the, be having the big picture. And, but it's also a good idea to recognize where you, on the, where you are on the path and really give a lot of emphasis there. Now, if you're meditating, like if you have, you know, you're going, when you leave here, those of, us, those, of, those of us here in Phuket, if you're going home, and you're going home to a way of life that has a lot of demands on your time, you have, might have children, job, spouse, extended family, obligations, obligations, uh, then what I would suggest for that context, and people listening by way of podcasts, maintain a balanced practice. Above all, don't be myopic. Don't just focus on shamatha or just on this or just on that. Maintain a real balance of practice that you can see for yourself. It's nurturing you. It's helping you. It's transforming you. The way you engage with other people is getting more benevolent, more balanced, more open heart. See, your mind is getting clear. Understanding is growing. Through the course of that, confidence, faith may also grow. You know, but maintain the balance practice. Don't get all frenetic, oh, I'm not progressing fast enough, I'm not progressing fast enough. You know, do the practice. And then at some point in the future, whether it's when you've retired or your life changes one way or another, when you have time where you can be focusing really, at least for some time, on full-time meditative practice, that's a time when you might want to say, okay, I'm going to now do a shamatha practice. I'm going to do a shamatha retreat, for example. If you can take off a year or two, all the better. Then you might, you know, you're in the ballpark, the, the area, you might actually achieve it. One month, you'd have to be extremely gifted, you know. Um, so when you're in full retreat, then you can think about, okay, now we really hunker down here. Maybe we'll make some major progress, from real, real transformation on a very deep level. I was just mentioning to somebody who came in for a meeting today that, uh, for example, Tsukhne Rinpoche, I know he has at least one nunnery in Tibet. Well, what do those nuns have to do? Nothing besides practice dharma for the rest of their lives. They're not there for a three-year retreat or two-year retreat. They're not gonna run, they didn't have to save up their money there and then watch their money get depleted and they have to go up, become lay, lay women again. You know, this is their life. This is what they're doing. So that's fantastic. One way, and they're in Tibet, so of course, there are people who want to support them. That's what civilized countries do. You support your, com, your contemplatives. A contemplatively civilized country, you do that. You know? And so it's a wonderful thing, just like we support our scientists. And that's a wonderful thing, too. No sarcasm whatsoever. But we support our graduate students, we, we support universities, we support research, and so forth. That's a good thing, and incredibly good for hedonic well-being. You know? And in a country like Tibet, well, they're all oriented towards, you know, in terms of the real sponsorship, helping. They're helping the monks, nuns, and other yogis, you know, for eudaimonic, for liberation, for awakening. So... If you're in that type of situation, like one of the nuns in Sokhni Rinpoche's nunnery, or if Mati Ricard told me that Zonsai Kenzi Rinpoche has a yogic community out in Kham, and there are 800 yogis there in full-time retreat for minimum three years, 800 of them, and 300 of them have a life sentence, and that is they're in for life. That's the best life sentence you can get. The life sentence is, I'm devoting the rest of my life to Dharma. That's your life sentence, you know? And Matthew told me that among those 300, there are people really dedicating themselves to practicing and achieving shamatha. 
Okay. But that's because you have a stable situation. You have a conducive environment. You certainly have teachers. If they have 800 yogis, you can be sure they have some very qualified meditation masters there. That's the time, in a situation like that, that you go into retreat, you do your preliminaries, whatever preparation necessary, and then you take a text like this and say, okay, I'm ready for shamatha, and I'm going to be glancing at the Vipassana, the dream yoga, and so forth. I'll take those into account. But frankly... I'm here to settle my mind as natural state. I'm going to take Padmasambhava seriously, and I'm going to do that until I'm finished. And if that takes two years, five years, whatever it is, that's what he said to do. He's the enlightened one. And frankly, this is in accordance with Dujumlingba and Shantideva and Tsongkhapa and Buddha himself. I mean, that's the way to go. Make your mind serviceable, and then you proceed into the next. And then you'd be practicing in this context. Then you'd really be going to Vipassana, but you'd be looking ahead to dream yoga and the, and the later phases as well. But then you go into Vipassana until you nail it, you know? So in a contemplatively civilized country, and to, despite all the tragedy in Tibet, it still is to a considerable extent. They do have thousands and thousands of monks, nuns, and yogis being supported, not by the government, but by lay people. Right? So this is why I, have, I do have such a passion, and it's truly a passion, to try to emulate to whatever degree we can outside of Tibet in Australia, and Brazil, and Mexico, and the United States, in Scotland, and other places that I know of, that I'm working with, to t- try to create these little refuges of sanity, refuges of sanity, and that is in deep sanity, that we create environments that are precisely designed for that, so people can come for sustained periods, and do nothing other than devote themselves single-pointedly t- single to practice, and not have to worry about money. So one way or another, that it's really financially accessible, and one way or another, they do have the guidance they need and the spiritual community, the spiritual fellowship. So until we have that, we outside of Tibet, India, you know, the Himalayan region, until we in Singapore, Brazil, Australia, America, Mexico, and so forth and so forth, until we have that, and I call them contemplative observatories, then I think what we can realistically hope for is to maintain a really balanced practice mature in the practice, make really good prayers for the future, and either you know, come back with a fully endowed human rebirth or hit the eject button and go to a pure land. You know, that's what we can hope for. If I be, you know, let's be real serious here, because I don't want to raise any false expectation. That's false advertising. That's lying. And I have kind of a strong antipathy towards lying. And so I think that's what we could hope for. And that's not bad. But if we're going to see... Dharma really taking root in modernity. I don't care. I really do not care whether it's Australia, America, Mexico, Brazil. I don't care. I just want to see it happening. You know, it is happening to some considerable extent still in Tibet. But can it happen for people like us? You know, that's the biggest question there is to my mind. Can it happen for people like us? That if we create the environment with the spiritual companions, with the guidance, and so forth, and hunker down and do the work, can we? realize now, as they did in Tibet 200 years ago, in India 1,200 years ago, back time to the Buddha. The only, only way we'll possibly answer that question with certainty is by doing it and succeeding. Because if you fail, all you can say is, well, I tried, but I failed. That doesn't mean nobody can succeed. That just means you failed. And so the only way we'll get an answer to that is a positive answer. right? And that's creating the environment and so forth and so on. Then you really talk about moving, shifting, shifting, and not simply maintaining a balance of practice. So that's the answer. That's why we're doing three bardos here in eight weeks. That on the one hand, 
What I would suggest for the next seven, six and a half weeks or so, what I would suggest very strongly is that in your daily practice, you have kind of your default mode, your ground state, the place you're always coming back to, is your shamatha. Because that's your basic sanity. That's your basic relaxation, stillness, and clarity, right? It makes the mind serviceable. Keep on coming back to that. Just keep on coming back. The, the other practices going out into the Vipassana this and the dream yoga that and, the, and so forth, that's the yo-yo going out. But keep on coming back to the palm of your shamatha practice. Where you come back, you loosen up, you get grounded, you get clear, you get comfortable, get back to your comfort zone and getting deeper and deeper confidence in that while venturing out boldly into the expeditions of your Vipassana, dream yoga, and so forth. That's what I strongly encourage. Now, as I meet with you, you know, one-on-one, then we can discuss your, da- your daily schedule. But then it's going to be, what I would suggest is for the rest of the time here, it's going to be a balance of your shamatha and whatever else we're doing as we move from week to week. But one thing that came up very strongly today with one person is also, uh, none of you came here with no practice, as far as I can tell. None of you came. I've never meditated, but I thought this would be good. You wouldn't be here. I would not admit, admit you into this retreat if you had had no background. They'd say, well, this is too much, too fast. Better go to one of my other retreats or somebody else's retreats. You know. And so you've all come in here, come to this retreat with something of a practice of your own already. So one person I spoke with today, cultivation of four immeasurables, Donglen, Bodhicitta. Don't stop. You've not outgrown those, right? Some of you have guru yoga practice. Some of you have sadhana practices, devotional practices of various kinds, uh, preliminary practices, vajrasattva practice, and so forth. So don't stop. Don't stop. Maintain the balance here, but now with an emphasis on the shamatha and then adding on these elements of the path, of the path taught in this text. But maintain the balance. There's really got to be heart and mind here. Heart and mind all the way through. Right? So there's that. So that's why we're doing this exactly in accordance with the words of my precious teachers, but actually all of them. None of them say, you know, just myopically focus on this until you're totally finished. And now you go to this, you know, and totally fix and then this, and totally finish. Don't do it that way. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Even in the nunneries, the monasteries, the yogic centers in Tibet, they're not doing that kind of rigid, rigid, everything, step by step. They're taking into the big picture and then gradually moving along. Okay? So there's that. So, good question. There's the response. Now, I'm going to give a bit more prelude because we're now really moving into another domain. Even what we did for the last 24 hours looks a lot like shamatha, right there on the cusp. does have a question involved. So, yes, it's vipassana. There's an element of inquiry there. But now when you go into this next phase, searching for the mind, well, then there's just no question. You put, you put it that way. Uh, anybody who knows Buddhism, you know, this is no longer shamatha. This is Vipassana, right? We're seeking it out. But now let's look briefly. I mean, I'm, I'm as eager to get to meditation as you are, but I think some context here can be helpful. Searching for the mind. What type, of, what type of Vipassana is this? And why should we search for the mind? Um, it's bombarding you every moment of the day. It's like being in the middle of a hailstorm hail and searching for ice. You know? What's to search for? being at a fish in the ocean looking for water. Okay, we're surrounded by it, we're enmeshed in it, we're breathing through our minds. And so, what are you talking about? And what I would suggest here is that there are indeed multiple levels of vipassana, of insight, into the nature of the mind. 
And I like to start there. This is actually, I think the context is very, very important. And so there's a whole branch of Buddhist studies, which I think really utterly should be totally integrated, integrated with practice. I received the, the fair amount of the formal training of a Buddhist monk in the Galupa order. And one of the first things we were trained in is Buddhist psychology, lo rik, different types of cognition. So there we studied seven modes of cognition, and we also studied the mental factors, 51 mental factors, and so forth. And there are virtuous ones, there are non-virtuous ones, there are variable ones, there are continually present ones, and so forth, and learn how they arise, what are the factors, how do they combine. So it's really a phenomenology of the mind. There's nothing there to be taken on faith, as if it's about somebody else's mind. It's a description, an explanation of your own mind and how it's operating uh, in the context of all the six senses. And so to study that conceptually, theoretically, and then to relate it right over to practice. So you're learning in the book, and then you come right back. It's talking about your mind, you look at your mind. Talking about the five mental factors that are the omnipresent, then you look for them. Can you identify them? What's the referent of these words? Oddly enough, when I was trained, there was none of that. We just studied and debated and studied and debated and studied and debated and moved on to the next topic. So I quit. (laughs) I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I went to his hole and I said, I, I've got to have integration here. I don't want to be studying intellectually when my mind's like a garbage dump. I want to make these practices and integrate them as I go. He said, good, do it. So then I quit. <laughs> you know, went up to the mountains and that was good. So that's one way of investigating the mind. That's Vipassana. That's not shamatha. That's really understanding how does this so this phenomenon with its emotions, desires, memories, perceptions, mental afflictions, virtuous mental states, sleep, dream, how does it work? It's phenomenology, mechanics if you like, but it's phenomenology of your mind, and to learn that theoretically and then go right into it and examine how the mind operates. Well, that's vipassana. That's vipassana. And so it's not searching for the mind, it's like you're being beaten up with the mind every day, so you don't have to look... Look for the mind that's mugging you. You know, that's, that's the one. That's the one, officer. That's the one. I was walking along and he beat me up. Okay? I didn't have to look for him. He found me. <laughs> you know? So no searching for the mind. Look what comes up. There's a very, a very valuable, I saw this in Dujum Lingba. I'm quite sure it was there. Very valuable key here. And that is, I look at Michael. I look at Michael. Say, do I, know that, do, I, do I know whether Michael's in the room? The answer is yes, I do know that. Well, look at him, point him out. There he is. And you say, I'm pointing at his head. Right? Actually, I don't see much of his body. Most of what I see is clothes. But I see that face. Nobody has, has a face like that, at least not in this room. And so I, I say, well, there, Michael's right there. And I'm seeing really what I'm focusing on is his face. If I saw only the bottom down, I, I wouldn't quite know who that is. Clothes anybody could buy, and those arms are not very distinctive. Sorry, Michael, but your arms pretty much look like arms. And I see a bit of a foot, but I would have no way of knowing that was Michael's foot. Right? Right? So what do I really see there? His face. Where's Michael? He's right over there. Right there. And I'm pointing to his face. And then Tenzin Gache, having the galupa machisma, she says, Oh, you think you found Michael? Is his face Michael? No. Then where's Michael? 
What I'm going to tell you is if I see Michael's face, that's enough. Again, no offense meant, but it's enough. I don't see any to his chest or his legs or his feet. I don't need to see 50% of his body. I don't need to see his back. I don't need to see, see his internal organs. His face is not his body. If you say, do I see Mike, Michael's body? I'm going to say yes. What are we actually looking at? His face? Is his face his body? No. But that will do. To see somebody's face is, then you can accurately, validly say, yes, I see Michael's body. He's right there. And I point to his face. So you see the point, right? Or if he had a very distinctive hand, very long fingers, or maybe a thumb that goes out like for six inches, you know, and I just see Michael's hand come around with that great big banana thumb coming out. And somebody could ask, have you seen Michael? Yeah, I saw him. <laughs> I saw him. You know, that thumb was a dead giveaway. You know? So then just seeing his hand, if it was a very distinctive hand, then that then I've seen Michael, sure, I just, I just saw him. He was, he, he just, I just saw his hand around the corner. You know? His hand is not Michael, the hand is not his body, but if he had a very distinctive hand, as he does have a distinctive face, it's unique as far as I know, then that's sufficient. So you see the point here is that if you say, but is his hand Michael? I say, no, but that's enough. Conventionally speaking, seeing his face, that's enough. Do I see Michael? No, I only see his body. I don't see his mind. I'm not clairvoyant. Was, is my, Michael's body Michael? No. But seeing his body is enough to say accurately, yes, I see Michael. He's right there. I see him by way of seeing his body. Right? So, pardon me if that was really obvious, but it actually turns out to be important. When do you see your mind? On this conventional, this relative level. Where's Michael? He's right there. That's accurate. And so let's just stop talking about it. There's case solved. Michael's right there. Right? When do you see your mind? When do you see your mind? Well, I would say in exactly an analogous way. When you're sitting quietly, resting your awareness in stillness, and you see a thought come up, you say, I just observed my mind. Oh, it follows that your thought is your mind. No, it's not. But then I never, nobody ever sees all of Michael's body. Michael's never seen all of his body. When was the last time you saw your gallbladder? Or your intestines? Or your bone marrow? He doesn't want to see his whole body. Nobody else does either. And you don't need to. Right? And it's just as you don't need to see the whole body to say, I have seen the body, that person's body, you don't need to see your whole mind to say, I'm observing my mind. You can watch children play. You're not seeing all their bodies, but you can say, oh yeah, there goes Johnny. He's going back and forth in the field playing soccer. Right? So seeing a thought, seeing an emotion, seeing a mental image, seeing a dream, seeing that your mind is uneasy, that's agitated, that's compassion, that it's hostile, seeing any of these mental factors or appearances in the mind, you can say, I'm, I'm watching my mind. Right? Seeing the face is enough, seeing an image is enough, I'm watching my mind, I'm seeing the space of my mind. Good, you're seeing your mind. Right? I'm aware of awareness itself. Good, then you're aware of your mind. Your awareness is also integral to your mind. Right? So on this re relative level, conventional level, you've already found it. I've already found Michael. I don't need to look any further. There's no doubt in my mind. Michael's not there, he's not there, he's what's left over right in between. That's Michael right there. And this is my mind. That thought, that thought, that thought. Yeah, that's my mind. Right? So on this conventional level, you identify the mind by identifying some salient feature of it that is indicative, representative of the mind. And if you'd like to understand the mind, then you don't just look at this thought or that thought any more than if you want to understand a person. You don't just keep on looking at the face. You have a conversation, you engage with them, examine their, their behavior, and so forth and so on. Then you get, really get to know them. So in terms of this relative, or let's say, mundane vipassana, to understand the nature of the mind. Well, you observe it. 
You don't just look at the brain correlates and behavior. You look at the mind and see how it functions, how it operates, how, the mental, how mental events arise and pass, arise and pass. And now if we bring this into more transformative, liberative, libera- liberative or salvific is the word, or soteriological, but something towards liberation, uh, that type of investigation in the nature of the mind, then we can turn to the citta satvetana within the four close applications of mind. Four, 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 four close applications of mindfulness, and specifically the close application of mindfulness to the mind. Right? Now, in, when we go into that, that's not so much learning about my mind, Alan's mind, the kind of emotions I have, the kind of thoughts I have, my ability in language, my ability in... It's not that. That's, that's fine. That's understanding my particular psyche, that particular unique configuration of my psyche. That's fine, but that's not what the close application of mindfulness to the mind is about. Because now, that first one, that's phenomenological, learning how the mind operates. Good. Let's move on now. Let's move on. On that basis, now let's start probing in. And in this foundational vipassana, I'm going to put it that way, then we start posing questions. As we're examining the mind, we've already found it. I'm watching thoughts, images, you know, mental processes of all kinds arise. Then, as we go into this elemental or foundational approach to Vipassana, we start posing questions. Like, what are the, and this is straight from the Buddha, straight from the Satipatthana Sutta, what are the factors of origination of the mind? Well, does this mean the mind is a monolithic entity that will happen one day? No, it's every thought, emotion, desire, mental fiction, and so forth that's arising. What are the factors of origination? What were the factors giving rise to this desire and this fear and this memory and this anticipation and this dream and this emotion and so forth? You really examine the factors of origination. How did it come about? Once they are present, then you examine how are they present. For example, are they static or are they constant state of flux? Big question. And then what are the factors of disillusion? When an emotion comes in, it doesn't stay permanently, right? It doesn't stay permanently. How does it... So you're kind of feeling depressed in the morning, a bit sad, a bit blue, and by the afternoon you feel better. Good. How did that happen? How did it dissolve? What were the factors of disillusion, of that mood that set in for a few hours, and then just like mist evaporating with the sun coming up, how did that happen? How did it happen? So now we're going deeper. And this is the, this, el- this foundational, truly sublime, so phenomenological, so sharp, so wise and transformative. And you're fundamentally in this foundational level, Vipassana, you're asking questions, especially three, as you're attending to your own mind, right? And ab- exam- a clo- closely applying mindfulness to it with discerning intelligence and with a question. So they're not shamatha. Then you ask the three questions, the three marks of existence, as you're attending to the space of the mind, the flow of consciousness, the myriad appearances to the mind, the subjective mental process that are taking place. You ask the question, static or changing? Permanent or impermanent? In flux or abiding, you know, unchanging through time? It's a big one. And you examine that carefully. You don't just debate with it. You really carefully examine First of the marks of existence. And the conclusion, of course, is that all composite phenomena are impermanent. They're arising and passing moment by moment in a constant state of flux. That's easy to memorize. But to see it for yourself, your emotions, your 
mental states, and so forth and so on. When you examine them closely, you see, wow, it's so easy to think my mind is. Many of you have come to me when we have our meetings that my mind is, you know, as if that's what's happened for the last seven days. My mind is, like one static chunk of leaden mind. This is my mind. I hate it. You know, where is this mind? You know, it's kind of like as soon as you try to grasp my mind, it's already passed. It's always like trying to grasp water. You know, always in a state of flux. To see that for yourself, to know that for yourself. That's a deep insight. Transformative, liberating insight. So there's one. You know what's coming then. As you experience all these mental states, and very much including emotions, feelings, happy, sad, depressed, elevated, despondent, encouraged, fearful, peaceful, and so forth, as you're experiencing all of these, you examine them closely. Are any of these mental states, are they veritable sources of well-being? Are they really sources of sukha? Are they a wellspring of sukha? Or are they not? We know that happy feelings are happy, but are they veritable wellsprings of happiness? If something is a veritable wellspring of happiness, as, as a, a, an artesian well is a veritable wellspring of water, and it's really simple, this. If something is a wellspring of water, a true source of water, every time you go to it, you'll get water. And as long as you stay, you'll get more water. That's what a source is about, right? Every time you go to it, you always get water. For as long as you stay, you'll just get more water. It's water, 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 water. Nothing else. If it's a source. Okay? That's a source of water. All right? So as you experience your, very mental st- your various mental states, all the comings and goings, comings and goings, you think of someone you really love, you remember a really happy memory you had, and you anticipate some really wonderful experience you hope to have in the future. Whatever comes up, focus on it carefully and say, are you a veritable wellspring? If I go back to you, Will I find happiness every time I come knocking on your door? And as long as I stay, will I continue to feel just drenched in this flow of well-being? If the answer is yes, you found a genuine source of well-being, of sukha, of happiness, of, of yeah, joy. And if not, then it's not. And the big deal here is that if we attend to mental states, let alone people, objects, wealth, status, and so forth, if we attend to any of them, any of these things within the phenomenal world with the expectation that, let's say a person, and I'm pointing to no person at all, you're going to make me happy. You're the person I've been waiting for. You're the source of, you're the source of my joy. I can't imagine living without you because you make me happy. Without you, I'm nothing. Without you, there's no hope of happiness. Is I finally found you. Pitter-patter, 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 pitter-patter. And the eight arms of the octopus comes out and, I want you. Don't change and be mine forever. Because you're the source of my happiness. Right? That's called dukkha. <laughs> and dukkha here means unsatisfying doesn't mean that, you know, when you start this adolescent romance, it doesn't mean that it's not enjoyable. But if you're looking upon that person as a veritable wellspring of your well-being, 
this person's going to prove to be a disappointment. And the relationship will be unsatisfying. Unsatisfying. Not because the other person's bad, or you're bad, but if you expect too much, if you expect that that person, or that religion, or that Dharma teacher, or that lover, or that house, or that reputation, that, 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 is going to be the wellspring of your happiness, and then you expect that, you're going to be disappointed. Because nobody out here, not the Dalai Lama, not the Buddha as another individual, not Vajrasattva as some image that arises to your mind, none of those are veritable wellsprings of happiness. And if we think they will be, that relationship and that whole rela- yeah, engagement with it will turn out to be dukkha. My expectation, my interpretation, this is why in America half of marriages fail. Sometimes they're probably ill-conceived in the first place, I'm sure. But insofar as in a secular society or a society that's kind of a bit goofy, we think that this person's going to really provide me with the happiness that I've been always looking for and never found on my own, but now she will do it. Well, that's just a time bomb. Just a time bomb. It's just going to, sooner or later, I had so much expectation in you, and you've really let me down. And the other person is saying, I had so much expectation in you, and you really let me down. What you've both discovered is neither one of you is the source of happiness for the other. Right? So that's understanding dukkha. Every experience we ever have, zakche tamje dungal wa, every experience we ever have that is tainted by mental afflictions is unsatisfying. That's your relationship with the Dalai Lama. That's your relationship with Buddhism. That's your relationship with your dog, your spouse, your job, and everything else. Insofar as your relationship, your experience of whatever, is tainted by your own mental afflictions, it's going to be unsatisfying. You know? That's a pretty deep insight. And if you have that with respect to your mind, that's a pretty deep insight. You know? And that's realizing the second sign, dungalwa, unsatisfying. Unsatisfying. And the third one, and we'll finish here quickly, is the natural tendency is, as we're experiencing, as I'm thinking and I'm feeling and I'm anticipating, hoping, fearing, remembering and perceiving and dreaming and so forth, that there's this cognitive fusion all the way through everything. Whatever comes up is mine. You know, my mental, my anger, I'm angry, I'm, 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 I'm. That this total cognitive fusion with everything that comes up in the mind and thinking that that was already the case that the mind was intrinsically, by its very nature, it was mine. It's either me or mine, but intrinsically, by its nature, these are my thoughts, my emotions, my desires, my memory, my, 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 as if they're right there in the very fabric, the very nature of the mental event, the mental state, and so forth and so on. And um, so examine carefully, is that true or not? You have to examine carefully. You can examine carefully with this. When your awareness is still and observing, you actually have a chance of observing these phenomena without the cognitive fusion. If your awareness is in motion, as soon as your mind is in motion, if it catches you, everything that comes up, and you're immediately, I'm thinking this, I'm distracted, I'm hoping, now I'm fearing, I'm so depressed, I'm really excited, then, then you're not observing your mind. You're just being kidnapped every single moment by one mental impulse after another, which, when you finally get some clarity, it turns out none of them were yours. You, know, you develop this Stockholm syndrome with your own mind. It tortures you, but you're still attached to it. <laughs> so 
So that's the, that's the third one. To see, these are mental events. These are like the ploughing of blood in your body, like the, the firings of synapses from your neurons, and so forth and so on. They're not your neurons. They're not your synapses. They're not your blood. It's not your heart. It's not yours as if, you know, it's in your, you are in your heart. These are natural phenomena that are rising independence upon prior causes and conditions, but not your heart, not your thoughts, not your memories, or your kneecap is by its own nature yours. And to realize these are simply phenomena arising and passing in space is to realize selflessness, non-self. And that's liberating. It's incredibly freeing. So that's a whole genre. That's a whole spectrum of vipassana that really liberates deeply. But it comes, and I find this so refreshing, and sometimes, frankly, I don't see it emphasized that much in Tibetan Buddhism. I'm trying to bring it back in. This close examination of the immediate constituents of our own experience, closely examining body, closely examining our own feelings, closely examining in meditation, carefully, closely applying mindfulness to our own mental states and processes, not just clapping our hands and winning debates, really doing that, and then phenomena, seeing how all of these interrelate with each other through this process of pratita samuppada. Frankly, I don't see many people teaching that. In the Vipassana movement, often it's simplified, really, really simplified, and I understand why. Much more people are benefited if you give them something really simple. But, man, there's a science here. I mean, it's so, so smart, so deep, so profound. And, and Tibetan Buddhism hardly touches it. They study it. comes in the Abhismalankata, right? Fourth chapter. There it is. They'll study it, and they'll debate right through it and go on to the next topic. Like, as if this wasn't meant for a practice. It is a bit weird, you know. But that's foundational vipassana. It's not running syllogisms. It's carefully examining phenomena. And the close application of mindfulness to the mind is to understand how it operates, but then also, is it permanent, impermanent, sukha, dukkha, is it self or not self? So to skip that, I know a lot of people trained in the Tibetan tradition, they'll skip that and go right into Madhyamaka, but without having this experiential basis of carefully examining body, feelings, and so forth. And it really looks to me like trying to build the second story without, without the first story. You know. So there it is. That was a long introduction. But frankly, I think it's really, really helpful to know that context for what we're about to do here. Because what we're doing here, searching for the mind, is not looking for Marta's mind. Marta's find your mind in a half second. Yeah, those are my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. You've already found it. What's to look for? You don't need any training in Buddhism. You don't need Padmasambhava's help to find your thoughts. Yeah, that's it. Right? So we don't need that. But also in this teaching, he's not talking about, now examine, is it permanent, impermanent? Is it sukha, dukkha? Is it atta or anatta? You know, he's not talking about that. He's asking a deeper question. It's a much, much deeper question. What's that question? In this context, because you have something in the big picture already of Dzogchen, what it's all about. Right? It's not a mystery at this point. We know what it's about. Why do you think you're a sentient being? Because we're pretty strongly convinced on that point, right? And we take it pretty seriously. All of you, not, not one of you, when you come into an interview, has said, you know, I'm getting a pretty strong impression I'm a Buddha. <laughs> it hasn't come up. Rather to, 
Oh, oh, I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling dull. My mind's agitated. Oh, it's hard. <laughs> That's not how Buddhists talk. You know. So, you know, I don't think any of you kind of breaking through, like, I think I actually am a Buddha. You know? So in other words, you're pretty confident. You're pretty confident. You're a sentient being. Sentient being, one of those who wanders around and around in cycles, you know. Why do you think you're a sentient being? What gives you that great confidence? Could be you look at your body. You say, I'm looking for the 32 major 80 minor marks. (laughs) Coming up with nothing. You know, not even one. I don't even have a head bump. I don't even have a mole on top of my head. I mean, I got nothing going there, you know. It's just an ordinary cranium. And, you know, the ears, earlobes, very, very ordinary. And so, but then, of course, you know that that's just, it's called the supreme supreme Namanakaya. When the Buddha is manifesting, it's only as on very rare occasions uh, that the Buddha very publicly, manifestly appears in this way with the 32 major and 80 minor marks, with the Ujnisha and so forth. But does that mean that only people who display these, all these marks and symbols, all these signs and symbols of Buddhahood, is it only they who appear in that fashion who are in fact Buddhas? Well, for all of Mayana, I say absolutely not. That's not true. There are different types of manifestations. There's a supreme, manifi- supreme Namanakaya, there's other forms of Namanakaya. And so have there been individuals since the time of the Buddha who have achieved perfect enlightenment? And when people looked at them, did they see the 80, you know, the 30, 32, 32 major, 80 minor marks? The answer is no. So for those of you who have seen the, the movie Yogi, The Yogis of Tibet, Yogis of Tibet, then you've seen this old yogi, Dupang Rinpoche, right? Now he didn't say explicitly, I am a Buddha, but he did say, I can remember all my past lives. I don't know how many people could say that who are not Buddhas. That's a pretty formidable claim. And he was being taken very seriously by his fellow yogis and by his holiness Dalai Lama. Very, very seriously. So most people say that. You say, yeah, yeah. Well, that's very sweet. Yeah. Would you like some tea? You know, you kind of move right on. You try to move around that ridiculous statement. But from him, by context, uh, you know, not to be shrugged off. Unless you really want to. You're welcome to. But then you look at his body. Here's a man that says, from outside, I, I presume I look like human. From inside, it's very different. But now, for those of you who remember the movie, what did he look like? I can tell you in case you're wondering. He looked like a funky old man. I mean, isn't that about it? He didn't look regal and awesome and austere. I didn't see the light shining out of his crown chakra and so forth. I saw a funky old man. Funky old Tibetan man. I've seen many people with better beards. You know, it was not a very impressive beard. And some people have, you know, like myself, full head of hair. I mean, impressive set of hair. He didn't have that. You know. So he looked really ordinary. That's what it is. He looked really ordinary. Or you might recall Milarepa when he was just sitting, just meditating on the side of a path and some girls passed by. Remember the story? Two young, two young girls, you know, like teenagers or whatever. And they saw this scrawny, skinny, emaciated yogi on the side. And these two girls commented quietly amongst, between themselves, oh, I hope we don't become like him. You know, he's enlightened, right? All they saw was this scrawny guy. 
And Milarepa, of course, overheard them, saying, oh, I hope we don't become like him. And he called out, don't worry, girls, you won't. (laughs) So clearly, he didn't look very impressive. If their one thought is, oh, hope we don't become like that, you know? And so, so in other words, you could look like Daniel. You could look like anybody here, right? And you could be a Buddha. And they don't look different. Man, woman, young, old, pretty, not pretty, fat, skinny. They come in all varieties. Could be a Buddha. By the, by the body, if that's all you're looking at, could you say you point to anyone here, anybody listening to the podcast, just, could this person conceivably be a Buddha? Judging by the body? Yeah, why not? There's nothing special about that man's body, or Milarepa's body, or Dujum Lingba. Nothing really special. I mean, you know, not the body itself. And so if we look at that, then it was, and then we look at ourselves. In other words, somebody can have a body like this one here, mine, and could be a Buddha? The answer is yeah. Yeah. I mean, just what, in terms of what you see, yeah. So, but I think we're pretty much persuaded that, okay, your body could be a Buddha, but you're not a Buddha, right? So why? Mind. Buddha's mind is different than my mind. One could, with a body like this, achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. That's possible in principle. But if this person here achieved Buddhahood in this lifetime, that person would not have a mind like mine. Otherwise, I'm going to quit right now and just watch television. <laughs> you know? I mean, if a Buddha's got a mind like mine, then why would I strive for it? And you wouldn't want to strive for it. You know? So sentient being mind. So clearly, if a person with this body achieved enlightenment, that person's mind would be very, very different than that of what we feel like. Okay? Isn't it true? So it's the mind. The quality of our minds, how our minds work, the quality, the nature, the just the nature of our minds that we look at that and say, well, that's not an enlightened mind, and therefore I'm not enlightened. Whatever my body, even if I started sprouting, you know, 32 major and minor mark all over the place, with boing and boing and boing and just suddenly, you know, like magic was done. And you suddenly had all the 80 and 32 major and minor marks, all of them just sprouting out, you know, like, wow. And then you look in your mind, oh, crap. The body looks like a Buddha, but that's just a big lie because my mind, just what it was before, I now just got exalted body. So I've got this Rolls-Royce chassis and I've got a lawnmower motor driving it. So it looks like, looks like a Rolls-Royce, but it's got a lawnmower motor inside. You know? It's not a Rolls-Royce. If it got a lawnmower mo- motor engine. Right? So there it is. So there it is. Right, it's true, isn't it, then? We have a sentient being's mind. That's what makes us sentient being. It makes us human, not Buddhas. Right? So what he's getting at here is, okay, Fair enough. True. Just like Michael's there. Yes, it's true. Do I have a mind that is sentient being mind? Yes. And I will say, because I, I know, I've been watching it. I have a sentient being mind as much as I'm as confident of that as I'm as confident. That's Michael right over there. For the same reasons. Same reasons. Yeah. I've got all the evidence. No evidence of the contrary. I've not seen that Michael is a girl. And I've not seen any aspect of my mind that suggests this is perfect, supreme, inconceivable, boundless virtue of any kind. Right? So I feel pretty confident there. 
And then we can ask, okay, good, on a conventional level, you're right. But now, does that mind, as a sentient being's mind, does it exist by its own nature? Is it inherently? Are you inherently a sentient being? Is your mind inherently, really, truly, from its own side, the mind of a sentient being? Can you find it? This inherently exists. I think when I hear you talk, it really sounds like you're talking about an inherently existent mind that's distracted, discouraged, uplifted, confident, not so confident, and so forth, like it's really there, right? Prior to and independent of any conceptual designation, it's really there, right? So that's the question. When he gets to searching for the mind, this mind that we grasp onto, that we take so seriously, that is our foundation of confidence that I am a sentient being, I am not a Buddha. And I mean really seriously, seriously, I am not a Buddha. Okay? Good. What's the basis for that? This mind that is the basis for that, is it intrinsically, inherently, by its own nature, is it a sentient being's mind? And can you find that inherently existent sentient being's mind? Can you find it? Or is it merely an array of empty appearances? That's the quest. We're running out of time. Find For this one, I would suggest try to be comfortable sitting upright. So if it's better for a chair, it'll just be a 24-minute session. It's already 5.30. So, but better to be upright for this one. Generally speaking, for Vipassana, I would really encourage you to be upright. It doesn't have to be cross-legged. But just like for the devotional practices, when we're reciting, chanting the seven-line the seven, seven prayer and so forth, it just feels better. It feels right to be doing that sitting upright. Right? And for Vipassana also, it's more suitable. So you can keep your session short, and then as soon as you go to sh- sh- uh, the shamatha, you want to go to supine and then knock yourself out. You know? Supine, no, no problem. Go back and relax and all of that. For Vipassana, you want to be sharp. You want your posture to embody that sharpness, the clarity, the discernment, because we're now about to set out on an expedition, and we're not doing so on our backs. Hola, so. So, if you're not comfortable, try to be. We begin, as always, by entering the comfort zone, the zone of balance, settling your body, speech, and mind in the natural states, and settling, calming, pacifying the conceptually discursive mind as you continue to settle the respiration in its natural rhythm, releasing thoughts with every outbreath and gently attending to the rhythm of the in and out breath for a little while.
So now with this context, as we venture into this practice called engaging in the search for the mind, you'll have some sense of what we're referring to, so no need to repeat. During the first few minutes of the session, we went into retreat. Retreat in shamatha, the calming, the withdrawal, the quiet, the serenity. We went into retreat to establish balance, equipoise. And then the time has come to set out on the expedition, venturing out with inquiry, with investigation. And now we begin this investigation called Engaging in the Search for the Mind. Padmasambhava begins by stating, perform the adhisara and the gaze as before. The adhisara is the posture. So you don't need to adopt, if it's uncomfortable, all the seven points of, of the varochana posture, but certainly sitting upright, the spine straight, and so on. That will be sufficient. The gaze, you remember. The gaze Cast gently downwards, resting in the space in front of you. Then he continues. Steadily place your mind in the space in front of you and let it be present there. So this is familiar so far. It says, place your mind, direct your mind. We know what to do. Like placing a plate on a table, put it there. Place your mind in the space in front of you and let it be present there. And then examine well. Here's where the Vipassana begins. Examine well what is this thing of yours that you have placed here today. When you put your mind there, you direct your mind here, there, what is it that you have put Look to see if the one who is placing and the mind that is being placed are one or two. 
clearly you must have some sense that you just did something. You placed your mind in the space in front of you. You did that, yeah? Did you place yourself in the space in front of you when you did that? Or did you remain right where you were and you placed your mind? But if so, the mind that you placed and the one who placed it, are they the same or different? Examine closely. Are you still back in here, having put your mind out there? And back here where you are, is that where your mind is? Do you have two? The one you kept and the one you gave away? Or are they the same? Is your mind here or there, or both, or do you have two? You know what to do. There's no mystery there. Placing your mind in the space in front of you. It's not bewildering. But examine again. What is it that you have placed? What is the referent of the word mind, and specifically the mind that you have placed in the space in front of you? they were two, the mind that you placed and the one who placed it, there would have to be two minds. So one must be in Buddhahood while the other roams about in the cycle of existence. The logic there is not transparent. But if there is one mind that remains still no matter what happens, no matter where your attention is directed, no matter how scattered, agitated, the mind becomes. If it's one mind that undergoes all those changes, moving here and there, with these mental processes, that, and this state of mind, and that state of mind, if one mind is the mind that's on the move, 
but the other mind always remains still. Wouldn't that mind that's never moved, never afflicted, never changing, never moving about, wouldn't that be a good candidate for a mind that is awake? So do we have two minds? One that is always still, the other one that moves and changes. So carefully, decisively, observe whether they exist as two. If there's not more than one, is that one the mind? So for commentary, see what we're doing here. We're taking this very familiar term, mind, placing the mind here, the mind is an agent, and we're seeking out experientially what is the referent of that term. When we place the mind, is the mind placing another mind? Does it place itself? What is the referent? Is it really there?
observe what is the reality of the so-called mind. So there he states the question very clearly and explicitly. This word, the mind, your mind. What is the reality to which that refers? And he concludes in this passage, it is impossible to find it by searching among external objects. So if we bring that statement into the 21st century, you'll never find your mind by observing the brain, behavior, other people's speech, or anything else out there. You'll never ever find it. You must look where it is, not where it isn't. And you must examine closely. If at times you feel a bit strained, a bit taut, tight, settle back, even in one session, you can rest a little bit, go back to shamatha of any method of your choice. Settle down, calm the mind. Go into a brief retreat. And when you're refreshed, you've set your mind at ease. Then set out on the next stage of your expedition, seeking to fathom the actual nature of the mind. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Okay, here's a question, and it's timely. The question here is, what is the target of examination in the practice revealing the nature of awareness? In your book, you use three different terms, consciousness, awareness, and mind. Sometimes the consciousness and awareness are just commonly used interchangeably, and sometimes mind is. <coughs> For me, with my poor English, these terms make a big difference. So, oh, more here? But this is good, uh, and your English is not at all poor. I know who's writing, I'll just give it anonymous. When looking into the mind, for me, when looking, there seems to be unfortunate awareness itself, but then also someone who is aware. Good point. Is the target of this examination the awareness it's, uh, itself? The one who is aware, looking, both, neither? Well, I think we just delved into that right now. Uh, so very good. No, it's an excellent question. And it's a, the fact that it's a burning question, and it's timely. If we were to be practicing exactly as he said, then, of course, we would not be asking these questions now. We would have done exactly what he said. We would have spent weeks, months, years, however long, settling the mind until it really was settled, in which case you've lost your mind. That is your coarse mind, you know, your individuated mind. You would have lost that, not ir irreversibly, but... You know, you would have dissolved it into the substrate consciousness, and that would be your new platform. Like climbing, climbing Mount Everest, you would have gone up to 18,000 feet and established a base camp. You've got another, what, 12,000 feet to go, but there's your new base camp. Well, once you've achieved shamatha, your base camp now is your substrate consciousness. It's a place to come back to, a nice warm tent, bliss like the warmth of the fire, etc., etc. That's your base camp. And so if you can imagine it, and you can try, you can get some approximation, Imagine having dissolved your mind. You actually did what he said, you know, before going to Vipassana, really focusing on Vipassana. And there you are at the drop of a hat, snap of a finger, you can just settle your mind. The mind just dissolves, like goes down the rabbit hole. It dissolves into the substrate consciousness, and there you are. And, you're, and all that appears to you is this, just vac this vacuity, but illuminated by the sheer clarity, the brilliance, radiance of your own awareness. But you drag into that practice, because you don't become an amnesiac when you get there, right? You drag into the practice these questions. Reveal the nature of awareness. Well, now that should be flat out dead easy. Signal to noise ratio? You got no noise. What's the signal? In an empty space, substrate consciousness. So reveal the nature of awareness. Like, got it. Next. Really? You've stripped it down naked. You're already there. And he's just saying, okay, now you're there. Know that you're there. Know that you're there. We're looking for the essential nature on a conventional relative level. What's the nature of consciousness? What's the nature of awareness? Good. That's all there is there. There's the substrate and the substrate consciousness. So that, no wonder he says take it for one day. Didn't he say one day? One day. That should be, that should be enough. It may have taken you three years to get there, but by the time you're there, this is easy. I've got it. I've nailed it. It was so easy, there was nothing else going on. Right? So, now that's your platform. But then from that platform, so imagine, okay, thank you, Padmasambhava, that was one day. In fact, I had several hours left. I went out for some pizza and some soft drinks, had some nice time because I finished my homework early. You know, one of those really bright kids that doesn't take so long to finish an exam? Finished. But then we go into this search for the mind. <clears throat> well, the idea, of course, and emphatically, of course, is not just to remain in the substrate consciousness. You've gone into retreat, right? You have to come out. Come out, come out wherever you are. Come out 
And then you see, oh, there's the mind. You come out and then you're seeing people and you desire, you're hungry, maybe you need to go to the bathroom, you want to cook some food, wash your clothes and so forth. There's the mind, right? And now you search for the mind. But not like look, looking for Michael and say, yeah, there he is right there, I see his face. Not that. We ask this, other, this next question, because you have something in the big picture now. Why, on, why are we not already realized Ripa? Why are we not realizing Ripa? Why are we not just manifestly, clearly, Buddhas? If that's the nature of the mind right now, not something we achieve in the future, if that's our essential nature, ground nature, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, why aren't we realizing it? Well, the answer is it's veiled. But we took this step by step on the basis of the preliminary practices, getting our act together, getting motivation and so forth, the first thing is to take off the outermost veil, the five obscurations. How are you ever going to be a Dzogchen practitioner that anybody in his right mind would take seriously? If, when you're on cushion and off cushion, your mind is scurrying after one desirable object after another. You know, I am practicing Dzogchen. Oh, and then the mind's off. Oh, I want that. I want that. I want that. Oh, you got my way. I hate you for doing that. I don't like you. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm agitated. Oh, what am I doing here? Is this worthwhile? I'm not quite sure. Oh, but I'm a Zogchen practitioner. Oh, but maybe I'm not. That's kind of pathetic, you know. So to think, oh, you're a Zogchen practitioner when your mind is just kind of enveloped in this slime of the five obscurations. You know, give me a break. It's a joke. And to think, oh, I'm practicing open presence. And you can just see the slime dripping down your face. You know, like, <laughs> you know, really, let's get serious here. If your mind, if your awareness is obscured by the five obscurations, you're not practicing, Zog, you're not practicing Dzogchen. You're sitting there in an ordinary mind obscured by five obscurations. So clean it up. Clean it up. You know, get sane. Don't be like that person who's sick, you know, indebted, sick, and so forth, and so on, and so on. That person is not a Dzogchen practitioner. That's one sick cookie, one sad cookie. So clean it up. Remove those obscurations. That would be a big step in the right direction. Remove those, and now that which you already had finally is now in plain sight, the substrate consciousness, right? But now you come out. It's a nice place to hang out. Don't get stuck. You already know that. You come out, and now what happens? This is all you've done. Let's see, you've done this very linear, linear, linearly. You come out, and now what happens? You reify everything. You reify your next-door neighbor, your food, your body, your mind, yourself, your teacher. You reify the Buddha Dharma, and so you reify everything, right? That is an absolutely major obscuration. You'll never realize Rikpa as long as you are reifying. It never happened. You can sit there with an open presence for a thousand years, 10,000, 10,000 eons. doesn't matter. Because your awareness is veiled by reification. You're grasping onto everything as existing inherently existent. Consider the analogy, a dream. If you're there in the dream, let's imagine within the dream, we're going to give really generous, in the dream you've achieved shamatha. So at least you're not scurrying all over the place. He's going to make me happy. She's going, oh, I wish I had that house. Ooh, oh, oh. You know, you've gotten over it. You're in the dream, you're lucid. That you're not lucid, but you've achieved shamatha. So at least you're not running around like a, like a crazy dog. You know. But you're still reifying everything. Everything. Yourself, everybody else. Everything. It's the Midas touch. You reify everything that comes to mind. Your chances of becoming lucid, as long as you're reifying, are zero. 
Stay in open presence, whatever you like. If you're reifying, zero chance, right? Clearly. As long as you still think that if I'm looking over at Gachi, she's really there, I will absolutely not become lucid if I'm still grasping onto her as being really there. But of course, my thinking that she's really there is based upon my thinking I'm really here, right? That's the basic etiology of it, the growth of it. First the reification of self, then the reification of everything else. But now what's this self that we're reifying? What is this self that's standing immensely in the way of realizing who we really are? I am a sentient being. I am a sentient being. Sentient being in Tibetan is semchen, a mind-haver. A mind-haver. A sentient being's mind-haver. Reifying our own minds. And, then, and knowing, that's mine. Therefore, Rikpa realization, not possible. So that's the next big one. That's the next big task. Good. You've dispelled the five obscurations. Big step in the right direction. At least we can say you're sane. You're delusional, but, you know, sane on a relative level. At least you're not, you know, sick and enslaved and all that kind of business. But now this obscuration has to go. You'll never realize Rikpa as long as you're reifying your own mind. And, of course, together with that, I really am a sentient being. I really like pretending, though. I am Vajrasattva. I am Vajrayogini. I'm a naked woman. Luminous, like coming from my heart. Oh. Oh. And it's Alan Wallace looking like a naked babe. You know, it's kind of like, who are you kidding here? You think you're a guy visualizing yourself as a woman. What, are you trying to be a transvestite here? What's, what's going on? You know, this is not stage of generation. This is kind of weird. It's not stage of generation practice. Right. So somebody's got to go. It's either me or Vajrayogini, but, you know, we can't be together, kind of like, you know, half and half, got a boob over here, and kind of, not going to work out. It's not going to work out at all. So this is the next major obscuration. That's why he sets it up. Realize this relatively luminous nature of your own consciousness, the substrate consciousness. Get sane on a relative level, and then come back out where your mind's popping up again, and now see, okay, it's a sentient mind. Sentient, sent being's mind, but is that inherently so? Is that really the case? Inherently the case. Is that who you really are? And is that really the nature of your mind? And can you find that sentient being's mind that defines you as a sentient being versus a Buddha? And if you can't find it, what makes you think it exists? So that's a big one. That's where we are. That's why Vipassana comes here. The next major obscuration, a veil to be lifted. And see into the emptiness of your own mind. And then like tipping one domino in a whole stack of dominoes. One domino falls, the other fall, 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 fall. If you really are viewing reality from this perspective of seeing, knowing, experiencing the emptiness of inherent nature of your own mind, then as soon as you attend to any object of the mind, how can that possibly be inherently existent when the mind that's aware of it isn't? How does solid meet something empty? And so it's not to say you immediately realize the emptiness of all phenomena, but the dominoes start falling, and you're going from the inside out. It's the insider approach to realizing the emptiness of all phenomena. And you start with your mind. That's the Mahamudra and Dzogchen approach. 
You start with your mind. Realize the emptiness of nature of your own mind, therefore your own identity. Conventionally sentient being, yeah. Find yourself, this real sentient being, nowhere to be found. And then you turn your attention outwards and the dominoes just start falling. If I'm not inherently existent, neither is Gache. If Gache is not, neither are those birds out there. If the birds aren't, nor are the trees. If the trees aren't, nor are the building. Building it. Then you go for, oh yeah, Donya Chambo, Domba Chambo, big emptiness. Like in the dream. Like in the dream. When you realize within the, within the non-lucid dream that you look for yourself and you find there's really no one there. And then you look for your partner or friend or what have you. You see, no one really there. And then you look for their body. That's not really there. And you look for their chair. That's not really there. And the dominoes start falling and you're looking in all directions and you say, nothing's really out there by its own nature and nothing's really in here by its own nature. Well, you're not lucid yet. But you're much closer than you were. Okay. Hola, so we get more than one day for this. Being really generous. We'll take it slow. Enjoy your day. See you tomorrow at 9.